the, uh, the family of this has been around for a long, long time, uh, but it really hadn't been appreciated by the medical profession that much, and uh, it's really only kind of recently it's in vogue to talk about the, the family illness, and it's so simple that it's, it's unreal to me that we haven't done a better job of it uh, a lot quicker. But the quickest, easiest way I know to explain the family illness is uh, if, if this is a family, my hand here, and you put an alcoholic in that family, they're going to have to make an adaptation to that individual with that illness. They, uh, and that adaptation is going to take the form of a survival role. Uh, to, to be able to live in this situation. Now, if you take the alcoholic out of the family and, and get him treated and get him well, whatever that means, and put him back in that family that has not had treatment, they're not going to know what the hell to do with him. They're probably not even going to like the son of a bitch, you know, and, and um, uh, it upsets the whole homeostasis of the thing. They will inadvertently or unconsciously do things to get him back to drinking because then they know what to do with him once he's drinking again. Now, if, you, if the alcoholic won't get any help, but you can get a hold of the family and begin to treat them for their illness and then put the alcoholic back in it, if, if the family is successful in getting healthy, that alcoholic will either have to get well or get out but an alcoholic cannot survive in his drinking in a healthy family. He's either going to have to get well or get out. And I think that it's this important. Now, what are these survival roles? Again, this is not peculiar to alcoholism. It seems to, to flower and, and show it better in alcoholism than any other disease that I know of. But what we're going to talk about is true of any dysfunctional family. But... Let's, let's call it an alcoholic family. One person in the family that's going to be absolutely essential is the chief enabler. And the way this thing works is that out of genuine love and concern for the alcoholic, that person will try to do everything in their power to prevent the alcoholic from suffering with consequences of his behavior. And if they're good and successful at it, and he doesn't ever have to face the consequences of his drinking behavior, then uh, there's never any need to, to quit, you know, uh, because that person actually makes it possible for them to continue with their drinking. So that's an essential person in this, this family uh, setup. Uh, usually it's a spouse, but it can be a... Um, mother or a dad or a, a spouse or a, one of the kids or something else. The firstborn of this set of parents probably is going to be the family hero. And, and the idea is this. He sees that this individual, this, this enabling system doesn't work. And the idea is if I do everything perfect, everything is going to get okay in my family and they will bust their hindsides to be perfect. These are the ones that make straight A's in school, have a jillion friends, they're cheerleaders, they're captain of the football team, uh, and, and really bust their hindsides to be favorite. Uh, 
be perfect. Now, it doesn't work and nothing changes with this thing. So that person begins to feel like a failure and it must be that I'm not trying hard enough. And so they keep on with this particular set over a long, long period of time and may be stuck with it for the rest of their life if they're not uh, made aware of it and made aware of the fact they don't have to do this. The next one to come along usually sees that the one that's doing it perfect doesn't work. The enabling system doesn't work, and he usually becomes a scapegoat. And the, the idea behind this one is if I get enough attention on myself, then somehow that's going to get everything back to right. And this is, this is a kid that takes the blame for everything, uh, you know, gets all the whippings, uh, usually deserved. Uh, he, he's truant from school. He gets sent home by the principal on a regular basis. Usually one of the first ones are the kids to start experimenting and getting involved in drugs and, and this sort of thing. But the whole idea of that particular role is, is if I can just get enough heat off of this other thing that somehow the family will be back together. Now the next one to come along is uh, uh, usually sees that being, you know, getting all the whippings, being the scapegoat doesn't work, being the hero doesn't work, being the neighbor doesn't work, and they say to hell with it and they just check out. And they become what we call the lost child. You know, they they just go off by themselves. They don't create any problems. They, they become next to invisible. Uh, they sit in their room and read their books or play with their toys by themselves. Sometimes they're, they're excellent students in this sort of thing because they bury themselves in the books and if it's the right kind of books they make good grades and all this kind of noise but they're just not going to get emotionally involved with anything or anybody. The next one to come along uh, sees that none of this other stuff is working uh, will decide for himself, if I can just get everybody happy, everything's going to be okay. So he becomes a, the uh, family mascot or the clown and this sort of thing. He will do anything for a laugh, you know, and, and uh, you know, like he'll accidentally trip and fall on his face and smash his nose, but it looks funny, so everybody laughs. So he'll start doing it over and over again when he doesn't trip, you know, just to get the laugh. He'll do it at any expense to himself. And, and uh, it's an extremely expensive way to go, but everybody loves him because he's making everybody laugh and everybody happy and, and all of this kind of noise. Now, this, this system, again, is not as clean as I'm presenting it, uh, you know. Uh, for instance, your, your enabler may poop out. And, and finally just check out, uh, maybe the family hero will have to come along then and take over the enabler's role and they'll all start swapping around among themselves. Or you'll find some people uh, adapting two or three roles, you know, whatever seems to be most appropriate at the time and this sort of thing. But what I need for you to carry away with you is the fact that stuck with these survival roles, the quality of life of each of those individuals is going to be far less than it would be if they could discover what the roles are and begin to give them up. Now, uh, in our family treatment program uh, at, at the Faulkner Center, uh, we have families in for four and a half days and we get them right at 40 hours of fairly intensive work there. And obviously we're not going to change people in, in 
you know, 40 hours or anything of this sort. So what we do with the families for the most part is try to educate them as, as to what all this is about. Uh, hopefully they can begin to identify and discover what kind of role they usually take in this family. Then we have a group to kind of validate these various different things and discover other ways of going without it. And uh, we're, we're treating the family for the family, not for the patient that, that's in the, in the hospital. I will share with you we feel strongly enough about it so that we would prefer not to take a patient that the family was not willing to commit to come in to get help. Now we do take some patients in where, where there's no family available or uh, it's impractical or something, but for the most part we don't want to treat the patient unless we got a shot at the family because if you don't have, your success rate's not going to be near as good. We do include the family and the patient uh, together on three separate occasions during this week. Now the first one, first occasion where we have them together, we have the, the uh, patients primed in advance and the family primed in advance to begin to work up a list of resentments. You know, and, and we want to list all the resentments they, that's eaten on them and, and this sort of thing. Uh, on the, uh, let's see, second, second day of the family week, we get them together, no dialogue, okay? The patient gets up, reads his list of resentments, and the family can't say anything. Then we shut the alcoholic up, and the family reads their resentments, and, and the alcoholic can't say anything. And, and this sort of thing. Then we separate them and, and let the family begin to process their problem and then let the patients begin to process their, their situation. The next day is uh, appreciations. And sometimes this is a hell of a lot harder than the resentments. It's not hard to come up with resentments, but boy, it's hard to come up with appreciation sometimes. And, uh, but anyhow, we do the same thing, still no dialogue. Patient presents his, family presents theirs, split up and process what's going on in that one. Then the third day is wishes, what I wish could be. And, and this sort of thing, following the wish exchange, then they can begin to, to talk and, and uh, uh, get some dialogue going. Now the reason for this is that particularly children of alcoholic parents but uh, some, sometimes the neighbors involved in it too. In this sick family process, people learn not to talk, not to think, and not to feel. And so you'll find that, that these families are loaded with family secrets that nobody can talk about. So part of this process is geared at wiping out the family secrets, you know, and then hopefully you can communicate straight on without uh, having to walk on eggs in any particular area and, and this sort of thing. So that the idea of the process with the patients and the family is to just see if we can open up good, safe, easy communication. Not easy, but good, safe communication. Um, I'd like to, to pick one of these people and outline it a little bit further so 
maybe it'll be more clear. I, I like to talk about the enabler, but one of the things that's absolutely essential to the alcoholic is somebody that can take care of him when he's drinking. Now, uh, we before I start off, that's drawing the people. That's the best I can draw people. Uh, people hooking up together in a healthy, interdependent relationship can have more than each one working on his own. So I'm. I'm want to start off by saying I don't have anything against a good, healthy, interdependent relationship. Now, once this relationship becomes abnormal, what it begins to look like is this with one great big ball and one little bitty ball down here. Now, why would this one get involved in this kind of thing? They feel powerful. They feel good. They go around and tell everybody all the good things they're doing for this and down here. Uh, they feel smart. They they feel just it's a big ego trip, you know. And and they feel like bitter, bigger, better, uh, more powerful kind of people. Why would this one get involved in this kind of relationship? Tell you why. This this one is safe. No matter what goes wrong, he knows this one up here is going to take care of him, right? And, and uh, if he gets sick, this one's going to get him a doctor. If he gets in jail, this one's going to bail him out. No matter what happens, he knows this one's going to take care of him, so that feels good. The other thing, this one down here, the little ball, can come just about as close to being Jesus Christ as anybody I know. You know, they never make a mistake. If you don't believe it, just ask them. And no matter what goes wrong, it's this one's fault. You know, and that feels that feels good. You know, not to ever be wrong and not to ever make a mistake, and that's why these people get into these kind of relationships. Now, once these relationships develop, all sorts of things can happen. Like I say, I go to a lot of AA meetings, and when I do, uh, one of the things that I hear about most is the resentments. If, if you go to an AA meeting, you're going to hear about resentments now. And it's my contention that most of the resentments that occur, occur as a result of this pathological dependent relationship. It's not hard to see. This one up here doesn't always do what this one down here wants them to. And if they don't, they're going to resent the hell out of it. Right? And they can't do anything directly about it because if they do, this one liable to cut them off. You know, so those resentments just build up higher and deeper and this sort of thing till he can't tolerate it anymore. Then he gets drunk. Then ask this one down here about his resentments, and he'll tell you in spades what a no good sorry sob this one up here is. You know, now if you'll buy this kind of stuff that I'm putting out, I'm saying that this person up here needs this one as bad as this one needs this one, right? They're, they're each equally sick. Now, in AA, they discovered that a long time ago, you know, and they developed Al-Anon for these people to go get help for their illness while this one was going to AA to get help for his. It took medicine a hell of a long time to get back to understanding this same sort of thing and doing the same sort of thing to get them started off on the right path. Now, what happens if you... Uh, Quit this relationship. Break it off. You know, it takes two to make one. only takes one to cut it off. What's going to happen to this one up here? 
going to feel less important, less powerful, less good, less all of the things that it fed in. It is a horrible feeling to feel less of a person than you were the day before, right? What's going to happen to this one, you know? First thing that's going to happen to this one is he's going to get scared shitless, you know? Uh, you can imagine what it would feel like going out and facing the world feeling that big. You know, that that's a scary place. Now, even a blind hog pick up an acorn once in a while, and if, if, uh, you know, if he makes a decision and it works out for him, then he feels better about himself. And each time he does, he feels bigger and better about himself. That does not occur overnight. It doesn't occur in four weeks of a treatment program. That occurs over the three to five year process of recovery that it requires early hard work in, in recovery in this disease. Now, uh, as a psychiatrist, I can't do much, but I can call names good. Uh, you know, the, we're going to call names here for a minute. We're going to call this little ball down here the alcoholic. Things, uh, one that I hear real frequently up here in the big ball, white. Okay. <laughs> this guy comes in and, and starts laying the story on, you know, my, my wife did this and she did that and she did the other thing. And pretty soon you get this visual image of her standing there with a funnel pouring it down his throat, you know. And everything that's gone wrong that made him need to drink it was white, you know, and, and she can take full responsibility for every bit of this stuff. Uh, another one that, that I've seen, uh, mother, had a patient at the state hospital when I started out there. We all called him Pop. We called him Pop for a reason. He was the oldest guy on the unit. He was 68 years old. We started doing discharge planning with him, and I asked him, I said, Pop, what are you going to do when you leave? He said, I'm going home to mother. I said, the hell you say? You know, you couldn't have a mother. She'd, you know, she'd be older than water. And uh, sure enough, this little old bitty drove 79 miles from Temple down to Austin, picked up her little boy and took him back home, you know. And they had never altered that, that mother-child relationship. They were both stuck with it. And it was enabling him to continue to, to just do his thing. Amazing thing, she outlived that dude, too. Uh, another one that, that I see. Sponsor. Okay? You know what they call you when you first get into AA? Baby. Isn't that nice? You know, implies you can't do a damn thing for yourself. Babies are helpless. And this are, some of these people believe that. You know, not many. Some do. Uh, if you want to know whether it's a pathological dependent relationship or not, ask this one who's responsible for this one's sobriety. And if this one's going to keep this one sober, it's a pathological dependent relationship. Now, most people, after they get burned one or two or three times, you know, discover that doesn't work and they, they don't, they get it back into the healthy interdependent one. But you got to be careful when you get a sponsor because you're liable to hook on to another one of these enablers. Most of them, like I say, don't do that, and none of them that I know of persist in it. Doesn't have to be a people. Uh, pension. You all know what a pension is. Pension says, I'm going to take care of you, right? So you can have a pension enabler. I had a patient out in California, he had a, a pension, managed $78 a month. 
And he felt like if he anything happened to that $78 month, he's going to die and, and this sort of thing. By the way, that's a, a test anybody can put on any relationship. If you can have a degree of honesty, I'm not real sure I've come along with yet. But if you can ask yourself, you know, can I survive without this, whatever it happens to be? And your answer is, I don't know. It's probably a pathological dependent relationship. If your answer is, no, I can't survive with that, then it is a pathological dependent relationship. This, folks, you cannot live on $78 a month. Have you can't even stay drunk on $78 a month. Uh, but he'd gave it hell trying. You know, he'd, he'd get out there and he'd get $78 worth of drunk and, and uh, then he'd run out of booze, run out of money, run out of friends he's willing and he'd come into the hospital doc. This stuff is killing me. I need help. Please, you know, let me in and, and let me go work on this thing. We'd take him in. That was the most motivated patient I ever had in my life. That, I guarantee you, he volunteered for everything. First one to speak up in group. The just super motivated patient till a third of the month. And then, then his check come in. Doc, I'm cured. You know, and he'd go out, get $78 worth of drunk. We're, we're kind of slow. I am. I don't know about you. But anyhow, he'd made about four or five round trips before I realized he added to that thing the hospital. You know, uh, and that became a part of his enabling system. And and when we discovered it, uh, next time he came in, we took him. You know, uh, but on his fourth day in the hospital, I said, Leon, tomorrow I'm going to discharge you. Doc, you can't do that. I said, The hell I can. All I got to do is write an order. He said, But but I don't have any money. I said, You got a problem. He said, I, I don't have any place to go. And I said, You got a problem said, I, I don't have any transportation. Uh, you got a problem. And I discharged him. You know, and that somebody stayed sober six months. Uh, he was scared to get drunk before, you know, when we pulled this support system away from him. He did come back, you know, but he came back different the next time. And, and uh, I'd be thrilled to tell you, Leon has about 11 and a half years of sobriety now. And, and this sort of thing, but he had to give up his pathological dependent relationships before he could do it. Uh, got one crazier than that. Uh, you know, uh, trust fund. <laughs> uh, you know what a trust fund is? You know, that's when you can pull somebody's strings after you're dead and six feet under the ground, you know? I had a patient named Wayman. He was, he was the uh, product of a, an extremely portrait, uh, successful portrait artist and a mother who was equally successful in writing. And they got married and had Wayman, I think, just to prove they could. But once they had him, you know, he had to be perfect. Uh, so they set out to make him perfect. You know, they tell him when to go to bed, when to get up, uh, what to eat, when to eat, what to wear, what kind of grades to make, what kind of courses to take. They were just molding this dude into a perfect person, you know. But after a while, Wayman's daddy died, and his mother got thinking, for God's sake, what's going to happen to poor little old Wayman when I'm gone? Well, it's about time poor little old Wayman's 42 years old, you know. And uh, so she got these smart people together and figured out uh, this trust fund thing, and sure enough, she died. She left in the state somewhere in the neighborhood of about a half million dollars. 
and this is back in the late in the uh, early 60s of that he got fifty thousand dollars a year and folks you can live on fifty thousand dollars a year tax-free you know uh have you you can you can stay drunk on fifty thousand dollars a year uh tax-free in addition to the trust fund, he had the, the house that doubled over as a, a gallery for his dad's paintings. He called it the mausoleum because it had all these portraits of dead people hanging up uh, in there. He had 26 people helping him drink up uh, this $50,000 a year, and it was a swinging deal. They, you know, if they ran out of whiskey, they'd just call a liquor store, send another pickup load out. Uh, and everything was great until Wayman got sick. And then you never saw 26 guys so interested in the welfare of another one. <laughs> they, they got him in for help. Now, they brought him in. And, and we started working on Wayman, and, and it didn't seem like it worked. Every time we discharged him, it was just a matter of days before he was right back in the same bag again. And he had been going through about three or four times, and we decided this thing plus the hospital was a mess again. So what I did was was call together all of these people, that the smart people that figured up this trust fund in the first place, and we met at the fanciest restaurant in town at the expense of the trust fund, <laughs> and uh, tried to figure out what to do. And, and they said, Doc, what do you want to do? I said, tell you what you do. You just convert everything he's got into cash money. Uh, put it in a checking account and give him a checkbook. And they said, my God, Doc, he'll go through all that in a year's time. And I said, yeah, and of course, some of it survived that year. He's allowed to have to go to work for a living and, and this sort of thing. may have to stay sober and, and may have to get well and this sort of thing. They wouldn't do it. He's a, 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 a permanent resident in a closed nursing home right now uh, with a chronic organic brain syndrome at the expense of the trust fund uh, sort of thing. What we put up here is not bad, right? Everything we put up here has been good stuff. There's, there's nothing wrong with anything we put up there. What is messed up is the relationship in, in this thing. And, and this is the, the kind of... I'm trying to draw you a picture of an enabler, you know, and, and where they fit in this sort of thing. The other... Uh, people fit in different ways. Uh, for instance, this enabler, if it's a good enabler, uh, it's got a whole bunch of these little tits hanging on, you know, just all over the place. Uh, usually the children of, of these parents, you know, uh, because the more she can get sucked into this kind of a relationship, the more powerful, more big, more everything else. Uh, this guy down here may be drunk, but he's no dummy, you know. He's got a big mama out here somewhere waiting to take over in case anything happens to this one. Uh, and this sort of thing. So it gets real complicated. Uh, but let's talk about these for a minute. Let me share with you something that's new and exciting, and it's probably not new to anybody here, but it's new and exciting to me. And it has to do with adult children of alcoholic parents. Uh, kind of thing. Uh, this is a splinter group of Al-Anon, uh, at least the, the part that I like. Now, there's other adult groups of uh, children of alcoholic parents that, that you need to be careful with because they're, 
uh, professionally led, and I'm, I'm a little suspicious of a lot of professionals. You need to make sure that your professional is a good one in this sort of thing. So there's two kinds of adult children. But what got me into this thing, there was a, a friend of mine on a committee with me at the Texas Medical Association who was a recovering alcoholic physician, had 13 and a half years of sobriety, and we went to a meeting one day, and, and we were there early, and I saw this guy different from any time I'd ever seen him before. And, and uh, a good different, you know. And I said, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee. We need to talk. And so we went to have a cup of coffee, and I told him how I saw him different and wanted to know what the hell he's got. You know, whatever it was, I wanted some too, uh, kind of thing, because he's in such a good place. He said he had heard about adult children of alcoholic parents, um, meetings all over Dallas and, and uh, this sort of thing, didn't know what it was and didn't know how to find out so he decided he'd just go. And he said he had, he had dealt absolutely beautifully with his, his own alcoholism, had an excellent quality of sobriety, but he said, I'd never dealt with all of the crap I brought into my alcoholism with me as a result of my parents' alcoholism. And once I began to work on that, the quality of my sobriety just went up a thousand percent. And this sort of thing. Most alcoholics have at least one alcoholic parent. And these kinds of, of systems work in that family. And, and no matter how well you work on your alcohol problem, if you don't begin to take care somewhere down the line of this other crap you brought into it with you, the quality of your sobriety is not going to be near what it could be if you worked on that particular area. So that, that I think one of the weakest parts in our program, as I see it, is the fact that we may not put enough emphasis on, on uh, some of the things that our alcoholics brought into their alcoholism with them as a result of their being children of alcoholic parents. And, and uh, I just see absolutely miraculous things taking place in, in this thing. Again, I'll share with you, it's not peculiar to alcoholism. It's peculiar to any dysfunctional family. I'll share with you a little bit about my family. I never saw it as dysfunctional, but damn, we just fit those, those roles to a T in my family. And I've been trying to figure out what the dis, dysfunction was, but... My oldest sister was a perfect hero. She was the oldest one in the family of kids. Uh, she made straight A's all the way through school. If she made an A minus, it was it was a failure to her, you know. And she was cheerleader all through high school and college. She graduated from Austin College, uh, summa cum laude, uh, at the age of 16. Never had less than an A on her her report card. Uh, she wanted to be a doctor. Now, uh, her judgment was had to be impaired to a degree uh, there, but uh, I had to work and make her way. So she got a job in the genetics department at the University of Texas. Now, for a hero, it's not enough to have a 40-hour-a-week job, you know. Uh, you got to go to school full-time, too. So she went to school full-time while she was doing it just because she needed something to do. Uh, and after a couple of years, the chairman of the department asked her if uh, she, you know, she felt like she had enough hours to get a master's degree, go over to the registrar and, and see if you don't have enough uh, 
uh, hours for a master's degree. She went over there. The registrar told her, all you got to do is write a thesis and take your language exam for a Ph.D. in genetics. Well, she had already presented to the National uh, Academy of Sciences, uh, you know, when she was 18, a paper. She asked the chairman of the department if that would be good for a thesis to, to work on. He said, yeah, clean it up and it'd be all right. She had never taken any languages, you know. So uh, she bought an English to French dictionary, an English to German dictionary, memorized the dictionaries, went in there, worked it out like math for the written exam, passed the written exam, got her PhD at 19. Uh, now she got married, you know, and she's going to have to be a perfect mother, you know, and perfect mothers have six kids. So she set out to have six kids, you know, and she had four under five years of age and was going to go for six, I mean, five, except her bottom dropped out and, and uh, you know, she told her she couldn't have any more. Uh, but then all the kids are going to have to be perfect, right, for this thing. She's got four kids. She's got two doctors, a social worker, and a school teacher uh, out of this outfit. She's still busting her ass trying to be perfect. She's 67 years old. She ought to be able to rest someday, you know. And my feeling is that, that this particular role has diminished the quality of her life. You know, just uh, she could have had a hell of a lot more fun, and I think God intended people to have fun living. You know, I don't think He intended us all just slave away and not have any fun. My older brother is a perfect uh, scapegoat, you know. Uh, Ellie, he got all the whippings in the family. No matter what we did, we whipped Conway. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, he, you know, he graduated from college, old Lottie Lottie, not sooner thing Lottie. And this sort of thing, he managed to uh, get through the seminary. He's a preacher. Uh, he always had little bitty home mission churches. You know, he had an opportunity to go to the First Presbyterian Church in Houston. You know, and, and there he might have made a living. You know, but no, he turned out and then got two little home mission churches, came to support themselves and this sort of thing. Sixty-five years old and still taking a beat, you know, and he set it up this way. I'm worried sick about him. He's got to retire someday, you know, because hell, he's getting older than I am. And and uh, this sort of thing, don't know what he's going to retire on. It's really none of my business except... Said, you know, I feel like the quality of his life was much, much less than it could have been had he, he not adopted this kind of scapegoat role. Now, I came along next, and, and by all the, the patterns, you know, I'm supposed to be a lost child. But I was born out in Africa. Uh, I'm an albino. Uh, and uh, uh, got malaria as an infant, you know, and got real sick. They didn't know whether I was going to live or not for the first nine years. When I was nine years of age, I weighed 46 pounds, if that gives you an idea. And, and uh, so with this illness, I got all the attention that I could conceivably hope for. You know, everybody's just doing for me. And, and this sort of thing it felt pretty good, you know. Uh, and and then uh, when I quit getting that much attention that way, I took on this this kind of uh, mascot role, and, and my job to make everybody happy and, and do all that kind of stuff. You know, three. I don't have any money. Uh, you, you can't buy happiness, but you can sure they'll go broke trying. Uh, but anyhow, uh, that that's a role that I took. Uh, you know, and my little brother, 
uh, who got left out of all this thing became the lost child, you know, and, and he's the one that was a, the loner and off by himself and reading the books and this kind of stuff. So even in, in a, I can't call it a normal family, I've just described how abnormal it is, but a, a relatively normal family, people tend to adopt these kind of maladaptive roles, and if they can't identify them and get them taken care of, the quality of their life is going to be poor. This sort of thing. Any questions? We've got about 10 minutes or, or I get to go home or Anybody got any questions about the family part at all? show people and show people, but you can't make them see it. I, I had a good buddy, uh, A.J. Duchesne, and, and A.J. got a, a new deer lease every year. And I'd, I'd ask him, you know, what was wrong with that lease you had last year? Well, there weren't any deer on it, you know. Everybody else got deer off of it. There weren't any deer on his part of that lease. And uh, I was getting ready to go out to El Paso. We were racing horses back then and, and uh, asked AJ if he wanted to go. Coming back from El Paso, we hit the hill country, the deer park, just before dark, ideal time, you know. And I was driving about 80 miles an hour, and I said, AJ, AJ, there's one. And he said, where, where? My wife caught on, and, and she started pointing me out. And over a stretch about 50 miles, we must show him 30 deer. He's sitting there in the, the back seat, going, where, where? Right outside of Snore, you, you go up a big incline, there's an embankment down there, and there's a little patch of oats down there, and there must have been 40 or 50 deer on that little patch of oats. And so I let the car coach to stop, and I said, AJ, you see that little green patch down there? I didn't tell him there's oats. He wouldn't know oats from Adam's all thought. But I said, you see that little green patch down there? And he said, yeah. And I said, AJ, there's at least 40 or 50 deer down there. Where? Where? He said, AJ, get out. Don't don't make any noise. Don't slam the door. Anything else. Just get out really. I thought maybe the glass was keeping him from seeing it. You know. And and uh, so we got out. He couldn't see him. I said, AJ, I'm going to take a rock and I'm going to chunk it down there. And it's going to be the damnedest stampede you ever saw. You know. And, and maybe you can see him. So I took a rock and I chunked it down there. And sure enough, it wasn't but one little narrow draw for him to get out of. The darndest collision you ever saw. Just, just you could hear the horns rattling and, and thugs going. And I said, AJ, you see? He said, there's one. You know. And 
uh, what it all boils down to, you know, you can just show people and show people and show them. You cannot make them see. And I don't know what it's going to take to make any given individual see. Except that I do know if you keep showing long enough, maybe they'll be able to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Friend up here. He's going to make points by sitting on the road in case he ever had to come into the program. Uh, let me tell you about psychotherapy in the treatment of alcoholism and the family treatment of alcoholism. Uh, I've got a farm about 50 miles south of Austin. Uh, beautiful place. Got two creeks spring fed. Uh, springs rise up on my own place. About 3,000 pecan trees. It's grass belly deep to a tall cow. Just, it smells good. Lots of birds down there. It is really a gorgeous place. And I got cows on that place, and they walk all over it, and they deposit these pies, you know. But fortunately, the sun shines on them, dries them out, and it still smells good down there. Now, I look at analysis a little bit like I used to get a stick and go down there and start stirring those piles up to see what that cow's been eating, you know, and analyze what he's been eating. And you start stirring them up and freshening them up, and pretty soon the stink gets pretty bad, you know. Uh, and you stir up enough of them, and the stink gets so bad you can't stand it, so you leave cows probably on the fence too. Uh, I look at that a little bit like psychoanalysis. We've all got piles back there, you know, and, and uh, Thank <laughs> you.